Good morning. I have a, uh, a few photos up there of a coach. Um, I purposefully didn't put any state of origin coach up there. <laughs> I knew that if I did, I'd probably upset somebody. But the role of a coach can be an important one. The role of a coach has, uh, is multifaceted, um, can be an instructor, assessor, strategist, mentor, demonstrator, advisor, supporter, motivator, counsellor. I guess the list could go on. Most times the role of the coach is to create the right kind of conditions for learning to occur and then to find ways of motivating others so that their optimum potential may be reached. As you read the book of Hebrews, it may be a way of considering the writer, that the writer of Hebrews is, is like the ideal coach. He's the ideal coach to a, a people who are floundering between Judaism and Christianity. And they're, as I say, floundering. I wonder, do you feel like you're floundering at the moment? Perhaps your world is a little shaky. Mark Hitchcock recently wrote this. Our planet is growing, sorry, is groaning and heaving. War, social and racial unrest, shattered families, surging suicide, runaway debt, inflation, deadly new viruses, drug and alcohol abuse, rising lawlessness, and political polarisation are coalescing to drive civilization to its knees. In today's environment, he says, good news can be difficult to find. Hope is in short supply. Our world is increasingly weary, worried and worn. Pretty pessimistic, isn't it? Although we may be shaken, let's not be stirred in our faith in the Lord. We may be shaken, but let's not be stirred in our faith in the Lord. Last week's passage spoke of the Christian life as a race and how we are meant to encourage one another and make sure that we all get across the finish line safely. It's not just an individual race. We're to encourage one another what must we do to run the race with efficiency and success? Well, still today, as the passage suggested last week, still today many a Christian will try to run their race carrying extra baggage. And that makes the whole journey more demanding, more difficult. It may be trivial anxiety and concerns. It could be the worries of the world. Some of those that I've just mentioned... And I purposely say they're trivial. Trivial anxieties and concerns, the worries of the world. It could be resentment toward another person that's like a baggage that holds us back. Could be secret greed for bodily appetites. Could be pride, ambition, self-advancement. It could be the toleration of sin 
or even allowing the philosophies of this world to permeate our thinking and to therefore disrupt our understanding of God. And due to some of these things that weigh us down, the track may then become a little more difficult to determine. Where are we going now? It's less obvious to us. And so the writer says, let's throw off everything that hinders. Let's run with perseverance. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus. And let us accept his discipline as a gift. Go back to last week's passage and I want you to to read that passage about discipline and think of it that way. Discipline as a gift sent to produce a harvest of righteousness. Well, the coach now gives us further pointers as to how to make the journey less demanding for ourselves and more supportive of one another. How we can be supportive and encourage one another to ensure that we all make it to the end of the line safely. We all get to the our eternal reward, or as the, the writer says, to the great city of God. You see, our world might be shaken, but again, don't let your heart be stirred. Your world may be shaken by godlessness, sexual immorality, or bitterness, but don't let that stir your heart of compassion and unity with one another. We need to help each other to finish the race. We really need to encourage one another to finish the race. So we come to verses 14 to 17. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Make every effort to live in peace With everyone to be holy, without holiness no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterwards, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. Even though he sought the blessing with tears, he could not change what he had done. Maybe you're living in a place right now where you very much recognise you can't change what you've done. The writer has just been calling us to run the race of this life with endurance and we're here to, to help one another along in that race. But what's easiest to focus on in these words, in these verses? What's the easiest thing to to focus on? Is it the do's or the don'ts? I think it's the don'ts. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or godless and that no bitter root grows up within you. Well, that's pretty easy to focus on. That's pretty easy to, to concentrate on. I'll look at everybody else and make sure that Hmm. We often look out for those who are bitter, those who are godless, the immoral person, and then we want to reprimand them. I don't think that's what this passage is 
getting at. I don't think this is what the writer is trying to encourage. We're not meant to come at this with a big stick and wipe one another out. You're bitter. You're sexually immoral. You're godless. Rather, this passage is meant to be focusing in on holiness and grace. Holiness and grace are the key in these verses. For it is holiness and grace that allow us to live in peace with one another. First holiness. Make every effort to live in peace with one another and to be holy. Make every effort to be holy. It takes effort to be holy. It doesn't just happen naturally. Takes effort to keep oneself from sin. Takes effort to seek to please God, to offer him your very best because he is number one in your life. In its simplest form, holiness means belonging to God. Make every effort to belong to God. Make every effort to throw off that which hinders. So remind yourself that you belong to God. And remind yourself too that your brothers and sisters belong to God. Make every effort to live in peace. You see, holiness doesn't guarantee righteousness. You might think, hang on. If we become proud of our holiness like the Pharisees, then it becomes self-righteousness. And so don't let your holiness elevate you such that you think poorly of your brother or sister looking down upon them and judging them. Don't allow your pride or your theological correctness to get in the way of your peace with one another. It's very easy to point the finger. You're godless, you're sexually immoral, you're bitter. Don't let your theological correctness, I'm doing all right, get in the way of your peace with one another. And don't allow your positions on other things to get in the way of your peace with one another. Positions on COVID or vaccinations or positions on drug and alcohol use or what you might determine to be their failure in sin as as sexual immorality to destroy the peace and the unity that we should be experiencing together. And the way that we do that is by focusing in on the grace of God. Holiness is kept in balance by grace. He says, see to it that no one falls short of the grace of God. Make sure that both you and your brothers and sisters don't miss the grace of God. Because we can take that for granted after a while. And we can think about other things other than the grace of God. Keep coming back to fix your eyes on Jesus. To think about him and what he has done. Focus in on Jesus. Consider what he endured for you. The reading that Les shared with us was saying just that. What he endured for you. Keep reminding one another of this, of God's grace in Jesus. Because we've all received what we don't deserve in Christ. We're all sinners 
But praise God, we're saved. Saved by grace. You see, it's easy to become sexually immoral or godless like Esau, who sought short-term relief and received long-term misery. It's easy to let a bitter root grow within as we see the sexually immoral or the godless and then we allow that bitter root to become an unpleasant, sour, resentful, harsh, cold, fostering sore that causes further trouble within the family that can defile many. It's easy to become an individual within the team, to think more highly of ourselves than we ought, or on the other hand, to become a passenger within the team and expect that as we watch all of the others do the work and support of encouraging one another that we can just sort of coast along. Now, I wouldn't normally make mention of a football team, but Carlton are doing okay this year. One of the main reasons is that their new coach has said to the players, whatever you can do to make one of your teammates look better, do it. Whatever you can do to be there for your teammate, to support them, do it. And it's made such a difference. There's no room for spiritual laziness or spiritual pride. We need to do whatever we can for one another, to encourage one another. Make every effort to live in peace. Is there a brother or sister that you're not living in peace with at the moment? Make every effort to live in peace with them. And see to it that no one misses the grace of God. Keep coming back to focus in on Jesus and the grace of God. Live in peace. Remind one another of the unmerited grace of God. You see, under the law of Moses, under Judaism, the people tried to attain what was impossible. They were trying to attain holiness in a form or in a way that wasn't possible. It was always just out of their reach and the writer seeks to remind them of this but at the same time encourage them to appreciate their newfound position. And he does this by way of comparison. He compares Mount Sinai and the new city in glory, Mount Zion. He calls them to holiness and reminds them of the old system or the old way of trying to attain holiness verses 18 to 22. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom and storm, to a trumpet blast or to such a a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word would be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I'm trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Mount Sinai is here described as a place of fear. 
It was a physical place burning with fire, darkness, gloom, storm. It was a place to be avoided. You could almost see the signposts around the bottom of the mountain if there was such a separation. Do not enter or enter at your own risk. Although Moses was allowed to enter, he he did so. He was trembling in fear. But the coach now says, do not be afraid. You don't need to be afraid for you have come to Mount Zion. And notice the contrast. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn. Now, there's a good name for the church if you want to start a church. The church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What a contrast. These words bring such encouragement. This is no place of of burning fire, of darkness, of gloom and storm. There's a multitude of assembled angels, joyful, joyful angels. If you remember back to chapter 1, the angels there were described as the ministering spirits sent to serve those who would inherit salvation and they were sent to bring the law. Now, toward the end of the book, the writer says they celebrate in heaven that the Son of God has accomplished what the law was never able to do. Thousands upon thousands of joyfully assembled angels. This is to the place of the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. And if you remember too, the last plague that hit Egypt that struck down the firstborn. Unless the blood of the lamb was painted over the doorpost, then the firstborn of Israel in those places was saved. And now we are the firstborn through Jesus' blood, under the blood of Christ, applied over our lives, granting us forgiveness and eternal life. We are told that our names are are written in heaven. And so we can be certain of our salvation. Your name is written in heaven. Praise God. We've come to God who, as the judge of all, was made, has made perfect the spirits of the righteous. God is in the process of making us perfect as he disciplines us. He not only forgives us of our sin, but purifies us from all righteousness, unrighteousness. His discipline is less of a punishment. You know, we often think of, of discipline as punishment. But his discipline is less of a punishment than that which is needed to train and empower and strengthen and to provide as the catalyst to make us more like Jesus. Just as the coach says to his players, these are the things I want you to do. These are the disciplines I want you to 
to attain. These are the things, the way to train. God, in a sense, is doing just the same. His discipline is, is a training tool and needs to be seen as a gift to bring us into perfection. And this passage also says that we have already come to this new city. We are already citizens of that city. Therefore, this extraordinary blessing that brings such peace and joy, comfort and security, this is no place to be feared, rather welcomed under the new covenant that Jesus has delivered. And so into verses 25 and 27, see to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we? If we turn away from him who warns us from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised once more I will shake Not only the earth, but also the heavens. And the words once more indicate that the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. At Mount Sinai, the thunderous voice of the Lord shook the earth. Now, I've never lived through an earthquake. But I imagine it must be quite terrifying as you fear for your own safety, perhaps your own life. But it must also be terrifying because of the ongoing thought that the foundations of, of your world are no longer as stable and as secure as you once thought they were. When's it going to happen again? Will I be in a safe place? But there will come a day when God will take both heaven and earth by the scruff of the neck. And he will make it to be what he has always intended it to be. Do not refuse him who speaks for everything will be shaken. So everything that is transient, everything temporary, everything second-rate, including Satan and the realm of darkness, will be removed from that which will be a glorious new heaven and a new earth. And that kingdom cannot be shaken. Praise God. Verse 28 and 29. Therefore... Since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Your world may be shaken, but again, don't let that stir your heart of trust in the Lord. God is in control, God can be trusted, is to be trusted. Maybe your world is looking a little shaky at the moment. The international world around us may also look a little shaky. Even so, 
Even so, don't let your heart of faith in the Lord be stirred into worry and anxiousness and, and even depression. Don't let your heart be stirred in terms of the faith that you have in God. This breathtaking promise from the God that he will, he will shake the heavens and the earth comes not only as a promise, but also as a warning. These things will happen, but see to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. For our God is a consuming fire. You know, elsewhere in scripture, God says, do not refuse him who speaks as, as you sense his prompting. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And do not quench the Holy Spirit. He's not a tame God to be treated lightheartedly, flippantly or in a shallow or thoughtless manner because he is a holy God. He is our holy God. But reminding us ourselves of who he is and his holiness should lead us to appreciate all the more the grace of God. The grace of God that's been extended to us. What Jesus has done for us by opening up the way for us to come into the very presence of an almighty and powerful and holy, gracious Father. He is our gracious Father. And so summing this this up and some of the the verses, some of the words from the, the previous weeks as well. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. Let us make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy and see to it that no one falls short of the the grace of God. Let us draw near to God. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Let us hold tenaciously to the hope that we profess. And so let us be thankful. Let us worship our God with reverence and awe. We're going to draw our service to a close as we stand and sing.